Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. You know, I didn't realize at the time that no one else was feeling the way I was because when I got drunk, man, this was this was it. I'd found the keys to the kingdom. And boy, if I could have stayed drunk around the clock at 14 years of age, I would have done that. My guest today is named Dean Becker. He is from South Africa, and he is here to share about his recovery journey. Welcome to the show, Dean. My name is Dean B. I'm coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa, and I'm just really, really excited to be on the show. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on the show, Dean. We were talking a little bit before we started recording, and even though we don't know each other, we already know there's going to be so many similarities. And you know, just being a person in recovery, we've been through a lot of the same stuff. So I'm excited to hear a little bit more about your story. And and you were kind of teasing a little bit about what your life is like now, and and thinking that once you got into recovery, everything was going to be perfect. And I think a lot of us come into the into the rooms with that misconception that once we put down the drugs, the the drugs or the alcohol, that magically our life is just going to become this amazing thing. And that's not always the case. So I'd love to hear more from you, hear your story and and just kind of fill us in on, on what happened with you. Yeah. So like I said, you know, I'm from Johannesburg in South Africa. Uh, we have a really, really cool um, recovery community here. It's quite big. It goes back uh, quite a long way. So very fortunate about that. Um, I grew up in a very typical middle-class family. Um, you know, I often hear of stories, um, of people growing up, either being abused or neglected or something like that. In my case, um, it couldn't have been further from that. Um, you know, I, 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 I wanted for nothing. You know, I grew up in a really stable home i've got two older brothers um and my my father passed away a few years ago but you know we grew up my my parents i'd never seen my parents drunk uh ever in my life um my dad never drank um my mom would have like a drink uh on a weekend maybe one um and and that was about it that was the sum total there was no there was no drug use. There was no, you know, abuse or anything like that. So it, it definitely didn't, you know, it didn't come, come from home or circumstantial or anything like that. You know, I grew up um, feeling so different from everyone 
around me. Um, and then unfortunately what, what had to happen, and I, and I learned this quite quickly, was I needed to present myself um, as being like them, uh, even though inside I wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. And the, and the reason for that is to kind of not draw attention to myself. You know, uh, if I had friends and I was social, then I was successful um, in my mind, you know. But inside, I, uh, I was dying for most of my youth. Um, you know, I went as far as to, you know, I think you call it like a class president. Um, I was head boy of my high school. Um, I played, I was a rugby captain. I was, you know, all of these kinds of things on the outside and on the inside. I was like a, a comic book nerd, you know, that was really introverted. That was, that was really me. And so from the beginning, I had to, I felt I had to kind of put on this facade and this act in order to fit in so that I would be accepted. And I think for me, acceptance was so important. It was like the, you know, it was, it was like the core of my happiness. It was the core of me as a person was being accepted into social circles or, you know, uh, programs or sports teams. Like no matter what it was, uh, my self-worth, my self-esteem and all of that was based around you know, being accepted. And the problem with that for me, you know, which I've only realized as of late was that I, I didn't want to be me. Uh, I wanted to be pretty much anything else but me. Um, and, and it went so far as to, you know, when I was clubbing and kind of late teens or whatever, um, you know, I would, get, I would get drunk and put on accents to go pick up girls. And the reason for that was because I wasn't good enough. You know, I wasn't good enough and I needed to go do that. I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing. And I look back and cringe, but, you know, that, those were, that was the extent that I would go to um, in order to further my acceptance by sort of decreasing myself, if that makes sense. Um, and so that started from a young age. Um, I learned manipulation at a young age. Uh, my first, my first, Addiction, I, I think, was uh, lying, being dishonest uh, to get what I wanted. And, and, and so that played in, you know, the grandiosity, you know, just never being me. Uh, so, so I started drinking quite early, uh, about 14. I would say we, we, used to, we used to get drunk every weekend at least, have a house party, something like that. You know, raid dad's sort of liquor cabinet where you where you're mixing cane and vodka and Kahlua and just whatever you can kind of find, you know, uh, and smashing that. And, you know, I didn't realize at the time that no one else was feeling the way I was because when I got drunk, man, this was, this was it. I'd found the keys to the kingdom. And boy, if I could have stayed drunk around the clock at 14 years of age, I would have done that, you know. Because all of a sudden, I did not care what anyone thought about me. And uh, I didn't care if I fitted in, and I didn't care about anything. It took all of the, those, uh, those chains that, that held me down, um, and, and it, just, it just broke them. But the problem was that, obviously, I couldn't stay in that state you know, for, for long enough. And so 
the minute that would end, I would go back to the kind of introverted, anxious, uh, down, depressed kid, you know, that I was. And so I pushed myself so hard, especially in high school, uh, to fit in and, and, and excel at all of these things so that I would fit in that eventually by the time I left high school, you know, I went overseas to Ireland. I went to go play rugby. Um, and now, now bear in mind at this point, I haven't, I haven't touched a drug. Uh, you know, at this, at this point, drugs were for losers and, uh, you know, the scumbags and guys sitting and injecting themselves under the bridge um, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I go overseas and my playing career is kind of cut short and I've got a job there and I'm earning money, but I don't, I've got a lot of time on my hands. Uh, I'm a bit, I'm a bit lonely and whatever. And uh, I found, I found a local pub as you do in Ireland. Um, and, and that was me for the next six months. I was in there every day. Um, I was drinking every day. I was 19 years old. Um, and, and, you know, at the time, if you would have asked me, you know, do you think you have a problem? Um, I would have said, no, absolutely not. I mean, you know, when I'm drinking, I'm happy and I'm relaxed and I'm, you know, vibing and I am, I love having conversations and I could walk up to strangers and just, you know, sit down and have a drink with them and, and, and everything was fine. And then eventually though, I, I came home, I came back to South Africa and one morning I couldn't get up. I couldn't get out of bed. I had this terrible, terrible pain, uh, in my abdomen. And it turned out that I had alcohol-induced hepatitis um, at the age of 19. And the doctor kind of closed the curtain, you know. He told my dad to kind of leave the room, and he closed the curtain. And he's like, look, you know, if you carry on like this, you know, you're going to die. And, uh, you know, he hadn't seen this in anyone under sort of 60 years old before, you know. And so, yeah, I got a bit of a fright. But uh, at the back of my mind, I'm going, yeah, man, I'm hardcore, you know, I'm cool. I'm, <laughs> this is how I drink, you know. And then anyway, so I left the hospital and I figured, right, I can't drink, so i got to do something. I mean, I can't just stay sober. And so I found uh, weed and started smoking with mates, and that was cool. You know, I got into that and I started to enjoy it, and it kind of relaxed me and, and also put me in that kind of, you know, I don't really care mind frame. And, and that was cool. But then about six weeks down the line, I am uh, now hankering for a drink. So before I know it, I'm back in the pub and I am, I'm hitting it hard. I mean, I remember those days were like Jägermeister and it was, it was neat. And it was like the, the more it burnt and the more it hurt, the better, you know, for me. I wasn't in it for the taste. I was, I was in it for the experience and the punishment, you know? And so now, not only am I back drinking, but now I've got a weed habit uh, as well, you know? Um, and then one night I'm out at a club and a friend of mine is up and down to the bathroom and I'm kind of looking and going, well, you know, I wonder what's going on. So I ask, and he's like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a bit of cocaine. And I was like, cool, can I have some? Like, I'd never done this in my life. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if I was allergic to it. I couldn't have cared, really. I mean, that's, that's just where I was, you know. Uh, and I was like, cool, can I have some? First, the umming and oink. 
eventually he relents and I hit my first line of cocaine and I had arrived in life. And that is how it felt. Everything else melted away and I was floating, man, on cloud nine. This was the great, this was the answer to my life. And I couldn't believe that I'd found it finally, you know? And so after a while, I kind of got the dealer's number from my friend. And and so it went on and on. Um, And eventually, I mean, to cut a a long story short, uh, about a year later, I dropped out of university. I attempted to live alone. That didn't work. I had ruined so many friendships and I was using Coke every day. And people are often like, yeah, but I mean, it's quite expensive, you know, for a student and using Coke every day. And I was like, you know, that's the thing. So so I got stealing and I got stealing uh, really actively. And it kind of started at home with, you know, my my mom's jewelry box. And and then it kind of went to my, my dad's stuff and. You know, I was pawning things and borrowing, and and it was just chaos. It's this hurricane um, of stuff that's going on, and and in it, instead of kind of saying, "Guys, I got a bit of got myself a bit of a problem here," in my mind, as long as I had a line, I was in business. I was not in trouble. Coming down from that stuff, that's a different story. But the minute I had a gram or I had a line on me, I was still in the game. And so I would never or try not to get to a point where I didn't, you know, because then everything kind of uh, multiplies and, and comes crashing down. So, you know, I, uh, I've got this coke habit now. I've got this weed habit now. And I'm, I'm drinking like an alcoholic. And this is, I mean, I'm, 20, I'm 21. That's legal drinking age in the States, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I'm 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 doing pretty good. And I go away and all of a sudden like the wheels come off and the next thing I know like I'm in I'm in treatment. Uh and it was the first of 12 treatment centers that I would land up in. Uh three of them were sort of psychiatric hospitals. But yeah, the rest were were treatment centers and and they started this kind of 10-11 year nightmare of uh in and out of treatment centers ruining relationships total chaos stealing you know uh, getting onto the street you know leaving home with two bottles of red wine in my bag because i thought that that was a good idea you know at the time uh, <laughs> you know and uh and and so my my uh my world is literally get clean for a couple of months uh, life gets too tough, relapse, go on for a while till I get bust, back in treatment, and and so on and so forth. The problem was each time that I was relapsing, each time that I was heading into treatment, you know, I was hurting everyone around me more and more. I, I was, I was of course hurting, and I, I was broken inside. But I think. You know, when I look at my parents and I look at, at my brothers and I look at my friends and, you know, all those guys that and everyone around me that were kind of trying to pull for me, I landed up pushing away as far as I could. You know, uh, I was ungrateful. I was, you know, cocky and arrogant. And I just thought that, you know, I had this thing under control. 
no one understood me. Um, if they did, they wouldn't have a problem. And there's nothing wrong with me as such. I just like a bit of cocaine. You know? <laughs> that's that's kind of that's kind of how it went. And I mean, I was ruining people's lives. You know, I was ruining my parents' marriage. You know, I know it was a massive uh, bone of contention in my my oldest brother's marriage. It it was just a disaster. I couldn't be anywhere. We couldn't go out for dinner because my mom was. Well, my parents were too scared I was going to go steal someone's handbag or something. You know, I was like, I was just so out of control, man. It, it was crazy. And the worst part about it, like I said, was I drew people in. You know, I drew people into my chaos. And then the minute they were like, dude, you need help, then I'd push them as far away as possible. And so, you know, this this went on. And, and during that time, I actually landed up in, I mean, I, I could only think of it as like a labor camp. <laughs> is probably the best the, the best way to put it like a hard labor which i did for 15 months uh pretty much swinging a a pick and digging trenches you know i may as well have been in prison pretty much but you know i came out of there and everyone was like oh man this is great and look at you and that's awesome and three months later i, I was uh back at it but this time the uh the coke wasn't working um anymore so there was a progression that needed to happen. And so I heard of this, uh, we, we call it CAT in South Africa. It's a hybrid drug of ephedrine and a bit of uh, crystal meth. And, and so I got hooked on that. And that's also like, it's, it's just dirty. Everything about it is dirty. While that was going on, I, uh, I sort of developed a quicker way of, of making money would be to gamble. So. I started hitting casinos um, again with money that wasn't mine, borrowing fraudulent stuff, you know, making bullshit excuses like medical treatment and then borrowing from like the boss, you know. It was just so out of control um, until eventually, you know, it got into full-fledged crystal meth. That's when, you know, the hallucinations started, the auditory hallucinations, the you know the 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 visual hallucinations and and so i don't i didn't know what what day it was i mean never mind anything else and i am totally out of my mind i am on psychiatric medication especially at the time and now i am just popping whatever i feel you know like i need to to pop i'm seeing psychiatrists they going well you know you're you're bipolar you all of these kinds of things you know, I look at it now and it's like, well, of course they would have said that, you know, I'm flying up, I'm flying down, I'm all over the place, I'm hearing voices, I'm, you know, it's because uh, I'm using, using the substance. And I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's pure insanity. Like I'd be sitting in a therapy session and I'd get up halfway and, and go have a line and then come back, you know? And in my mind, I'm like, no, you know, like I'm doing therapy, like I'm good, you know? I'm, I'm really good. So there was this denial aspect is so huge. Got a little clean, met, uh, met a girl uh, who's now, thank God, my wife. And, you know, she, she didn't know. She didn't know much about it. And so I kept, I kept it uh, sort of under wraps as much as possible. She knew I was, you know, I was an addict. And again, like the half-truths, the half-truths was a massive one. Um, but I'm no longer an addict and I was, I was just using, you know, continuously. 
And eventually, you know, she found out and, it, you know, we were engaged at the time. And like, I remember she's sitting on the bathroom floor, just sobbing. And I'm kind of going, oh, it's not so bad. I'll go to treatment, you know, again, I'll go back to treatment. Okay, cool. And, and we got married and that was cool. And, you know, a couple months later, you know, I start up again and it's the, yo, it was the lying and it was the, the stealing and the borrowing. And, and now I've got a job, like my first real job. And I am all over that office borrowing uh, money from people, you know. Uh, my brother worked at the same company. He he was really respected and had a good reputation. And they kind of figured, look, you know, they know him, they can trust me. And so that was a massive mistake. And I'm, you know, kind of going around literally from, from office to office, just, just getting as much money as I can so I can use and use and use and sleeping on the couch at night because I wanted to watch porn, you know, and I wanted to gamble online and I wanted to do all these things. And my wife's up there. Not only is she not sleeping, she's sobbing herself to sleep every night. She's crying, man, because she can see what is happening here. She knows there's someone good inside but she can see exactly what is happening here and where her life's going. And I'm downstairs and I couldn't give a shit, man, because I was selfish and self-centered, arrogant about it and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm living in a world where I'm borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And, you know, my, my marriage is at that point was kind of non-existent, you know, uh, and we're living, we're living apart from family and, all of that kind of stuff's going on. And, and I'm still lying there thinking that everything is cool, you know, because it's four o'clock in the morning. I still got half a gram, you know, of, of cat and, and I've got X, Y, and Z. And, and then I'm going to go to work and I'm going to borrow more money and I'm going to this and I'm going to that. So this delusional, um, this delusion, you know, is, is just so unbelievable. And, you know, listeners will identify, and I'm sure you can as well. You know, it's just, this illusion is just, it's like a cancer. You know, it's got its claws in me and I cannot see the wood for the trees. You know, I think I'm doing pretty well, you know, <laughs> and, and that denial, that, um, that chaos is just, I mean, if I think of hell, that would be it, you know? And so, you know, then my, then my wife gets pregnant and uh, I kind of, you know, I kind of vow, you know, I'm not going to do it again. And I mean, that's, that's the biggest, that's the funniest thing an addict can do. You know, it's like, you know, the minute my wife gets pregnant, I'm going to stop, you know, <laughs> it ain't happening, you know? So I did that. I relapsed, obviously. Now she's pregnant. And I'm out doing all of these things. And uh, she's eight months pregnant. I'll never forget this. The worst, one of the worst nights of my life. She's eight months pregnant. She has dropped me at a meeting, a fellowship meeting. So she, so she thought. Uh, I left. I ran up the road. It's an area called Santon. And there's a casino up the road. And I'm high. And I go out. And I gamble and I gamble everything away. Sorry, I was driving at the time. Sorry. So I gamble everything away so much so that I can't pay for parking to get out 
<laughs> so, man, I had to phone her. Eight months pregnant. She had to come down to Santi. She had to into a parking garage to find her drug addict husband, you know, kind of, I don't know, just like freaking out and, and, but high off my face. And she's kind of sitting next to me going, dude, what are we going to do? Like, you cannot carry on. Like, you know, we, I'm having a kid. Like, so anyway, like that, that caused a massive rift. But then, you know, my, my daughter, Mia was born on the 31st of May, 2018. And eight days later, I was in rehab. So she's born. I use that excuse. You know, babe, you, you just relax with a baby and her folks were there and I'll go do the shopping or I'll go, you know, this wonderful husband. Meanwhile, I'm just scoring drugs um, and using it, you know, to my advantage. I'm telling my boss that we need like medical stuff with a baby and so he's just i mean he's an amazing man and he's just he's just opening his heart and he's going of course you know um i was at a very entry level sort of position but he was like yeah you know here we go uh and i'm taking that money and i'm just using with it you know i am absolutely using and so i land up uh sort of skipping work and everyone finds out and i go into treatment and uh for the second last time <laughs> and then come out and, and I am, you know, I'm, I'm now in a position where I realize what I'm doing is, is, a, is a massive problem. People listening to us, you know, might turn around and, and, and think, dude, did you only realize then, you know? And, but I did, you know, that's the, that's the crazy thing. Like I thought I was still okay. I was doing, you know, doing well or decently. And so I was, I was clean for a while and then, you know, life got tough and, uh, and, and I had to escape. And so I picked it up again and I went, I went back to the same place actually for treatment. And I really got stuck in, I was introduced to the, the, uh, AA program, uh, and the big book. And I started reading that and like really identified, you know? But a lot of stuff in there, and I think that was a massive part for me, was the identification. As I said, like, I always felt apart, you know. And even when I went into fellowship meetings during those 10 or 11 crazy years, I always felt apart. I looked around, people were in cliques and groups, and, and it probably wasn't like that, but in my mind it was, you know. But anyway, so, so then I come out of, of, of treatment and uh, 11 months after that, you know, I pick up again, which would be the last time I come home. My wife is, uh, she's halfway out the door. She's, uh, she's done. You can imagine. And, and, and it's an absolute miracle that she stayed and, and I'm lying on the bathroom floor and I am screaming my lungs out and I'm just screaming, what do you want from me? you know, uh, uh, to God, to, to whoever, whatever, the universe, what do you want for me? I didn't know I'm trying. I can't help myself. You know, all I do is hurt people, all of this, all of that. And the next thing, like, I get up off the, off the floor and that night I go to sleep and the next morning I wake up and I go to work. And, you know, that was, thank God, 31 months ago. 
and it's it's not a, a real long time. I know there's some long time, you know, there's some old timers, but you know, this this is the start, you know, this is the foundation. You know, I've since had a had a son as well. You know, my wife and I have been married now a couple of years. I've got a job at the same place with the same boss. <laughs> you know, that was a, that was an interesting amend, but uh, <laughs> you know, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, but getting to you know the second sort of part or theme is you know what kind of happened. People often ask what was different. You know, what was different this time to the million other t- attempts you had before. Um, and I think I don't think there's anything that I can put my finger on exactly but um i think one of them is that just because i'm clean just because i'm sober does not mean that life is going to be easy that life is going to be fair and that i am able to to manage life completely perfectly because i'm not under the influence and i think for me that was a massive realization and it allowed me to go okay shit's going to happen it doesn't mean it's always going to happen. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, but it doesn't mean that I need to escape, you know, from that shit. And I think that's a, that's a massive uh, point and lesson that I had to learn and had to learn the hard way is that life is tough. We need to take responsibility for, I need to take responsibility for my actions, my behavior and my life situation put my hand up and do my best. And you know what, man, sometimes my absolute best is not good enough. And what I mean by that is it just won't push, you know, the cart, that extra kilometer or that extra, you know, and and that's okay. And it's being okay with that. And then it's also about just being okay with me and, and being okay living with a disease like of addiction, whether someone, whether it's uh depression or any other mental disease or or anything like that like it's really really important to embrace it and kind of say you know so this these are you know this is what i deal with maybe they they cause certain limitations in 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 certain areas and uh but i don't you know i don't care i'm i'm pushing forward and just because i have this like i i still see myself as a real asset you know to society and uh i mean addicts are man addicts alcoholics you know we it's the most amazing people the most intelligent people the most empathetic people and i mean i got you know with the people out there and i mean i i'm going to say you as well you know saving lives like doctors are usually the people that, you know, we think save life. But in recovery circles, we know that's not the truth. You know, there are people in meetings and, you know, people listening to shows like this and that, that, like myself, whose lives were saved because of that, you know. And uh, I just think it's such an amazing thing. It's such an amazing group to belong to. And I think it's really important, like I said before, is just to, be honest about what's going on. You know, if I am having a really, really shitty day uh, at work or something like that, it's about putting my hand up 
phoning someone or speaking to my wife or whatever and just being like, shit, you know, I'm not coping. Like this is hectic and I'm just not coping. Because the minute that I'm honest about my disease, whether it be depression or however I'm feeling, then I can get help. If I keep that shit to myself, I can't be helped because people can't dig away, you know, under my skin. So if I'm not open with it, you know, and the other thing is like, for me, being honest, you know, with, with people, it, it's weird. Like it's strange for people, you know, to, when you, when you're real honest, some people are very guarded and, but I promise you, like it will save lives. It saved my life many times, you know, and uh, it's really, really important in, in my opinion, you know, that we do bring other people into our recovery, you know, in, in my case and, you know, the, the people that I know in this uh, group and, and in fellowship meetings, whatever they may be, you know, because if it's me making decisions for me, then we're letting the lunatics run the asylum, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sick, man. I got a sick brain, <laughs> you know, sick mind. Um, so I do, I need help and that's okay. You know, that's okay. So, you know, the honesty and getting help um, from others and kind of being okay and accepting the fact that I have stuff, uh, but it doesn't limit me are, are big things. And then the biggest thing which probably got me clean is that just because I've stopped using and stopped drinking and stopped gambling and all of that stuff doesn't mean I'm going to be able to navigate this life perfectly. And that's okay. Man, you, you were not wrong. There are a lot of similarities and, and even just there from the beginning, I love that you brought it up because it's similar to my story. Like I grew up in a middle-class family, didn't really want for anything, wasn't any kind of abuse, you know, nothing along those lines. And I still ended up using. So I think that it's important that we bring that up because I think a lot of times people think that if I didn't have this big, huge traumatic event in my life, then why am I an addict? Why am I using? But yeah, just like you, there wasn't any big, huge thing in my life. I like you just never felt like I fit in, didn't feel, just didn't feel comfortable in my own skin and, and felt the need to escape because I didn't know how to just be me and be around other people and, and not just feel out of place. And then you were touching on the first time you tried Coke and you're just like, this is it. I remember having that same exact experience. The first time that I did methamphetamine, I, I did it. It was with a coworker and I tried it for the first time. And it was like, where's this been? Like, this is the answer. This is what I've been looking for. <laughs> you know, I feel alert. I feel awake. I feel like I can be productive. Just like everything that I, I just felt like, this is the answer. So I, I got exactly what you're talking about there too, or it's like, this is the missing piece. Yeah. Not knowing like if I continue down this path, like it's going to get really dark and it's not going to be a good ending, but just thinking like, this is it. And, and now I'm going to devote my life to as long as I can continue to use this substance, I'm going to be fine. And doesn't matter what it takes, you know, stealing or whatever, we have to do to get our, our next one. Like I, I can identify with that so much. And, and, and then at the end you were talking about, you didn't know what was different this time. And I think from hearing your story, at least what, what I picked from that and what I think was different for you this last time you, you talked about identifying with the big book and identifying with some of the stuff that you were hearing in those meetings. And I think that's what it was. Cause I can, 
I, I kind of have a similar story mm-hmm. where I went in and out for a few years and didn't, didn't really get it. Didn't feel like I fit in, didn't, you know, whatever the reason is. And then I can remember hearing some of those things and seeing the parallels of my life and being like, Oh, maybe, maybe I am, maybe I, yeah. you know, and, and starting to connect those dots. And then when I was able to identify that, Oh, I'm just like these people, then recovery became possible. There's such a, uh, an important, uh, exchange that happens, you know, when one addict sort of meets another or alcoholic, uh, and you're talking and then, and that person says, you know, me too. Mm. I think those two words are just everything, you know, because there's nothing, Oh, all of a sudden you can like breathe, you know what I mean? And like, you, you understand each other and you're comfortable and, and that's cool. And so I agree with you a hundred percent identification. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're getting towards the end of the time. So I'd love to give you an opportunity. If you want to share a message with somebody that's new or struggling, what you would tell somebody that's maybe on the fence or, you know, been in that same situation as you are where they're going back and forth and, you know, little stints of, of being clean and sober and then going back or whatever. And if you'd like to, you could also let people know how to get in contact with you. If that's something that you're comfortable with, or if not, that's okay too. I think what is overall the most important thing is honest. And I think self-honesty, if, if someone is able to look themselves in the mirror or sit down and, and really get honest with themselves, I believe that, you know, you will know whether you got a problem and you need help or not. I think every addict, every alcoholic, you know, regardless of uh, my sort of what's the word denial and and arrogance and all of that deep down when I went to bed at night or whatever the situation was, I knew I had a problem. You know, I think that people are often intimidated, but should know that for the most part, admitting it to a loved one or someone you trust is always the start. And, And I know that, you know, if I, have someone that comes to me and says, look, I think I'm a drug addict. I'm going to open my heart to that person. But if I'm sort of finding all the signs and no admission, you know, it, it becomes a lot more difficult, you know, as it was like for my parents. I know that if I came to them and said, guys, I'm in trouble, I need help. They would have given it to me. You know, they would, they, they would have been on board. They were on board, you know, and I, they didn't even get that from me. So I think that like honesty is number one, you know, in this policy, I mean, in this game and the other honesty, you know, which I never did was I was not having a good time in recovery and I was too guilty to kind of put my hand up and say, guys, you know, this isn't actually working for me or I'm not finding what you're finding, you know? And I think if I did that, I would have got a lot more guidance, a lot more help from people that are in recovery. Instead, I sort of tried to keep going on that path and just landed up relapsing and relapsing and relapsing. So if you're not having a good time in recovery, it's okay. You know, it's okay. Put your hand up, ask for help because you just, you never know. Someone can say one thing or do one thing and it, it just gets you straight back, you know? So I think that it's important to be honest about recovery, where you're at in recovery and, and if you're happy or not. I know for me, I wasn't, you know, like, a, 
like I said, and uh, like you said, you know, the identification. I spoke to people around me and I was like, look, guys, this, I'm, I'm hating this. You know, I don't know what's wrong. I mean, I have no doubt they would have sat and worked it out and, you know, supported and been there. Uh, but instead, I, uh, I kept it to myself and I just kept hitting my head. And fortunately, that's going to keep happening. Uh, I've learned that now, you know, put your hand up, doesn't matter what it is, for help. So, you know, to be honest, I am not overly on, what did you call it, social media at all. I, I would love to uh, hear from, from anyone, really, and, and to help. So, I mean, I can, I would love to give my email address, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So, it's Dean, D-E-A-N at Imperium Secure. So that's I-M-P-E-R-I-U-M secure.com. And uh, yeah, it's, it would be wonderful to hear from, from anyone really just to, to say, Hey, and, and chat. And then, you know, we can go from there, but uh, this has been an absolute pleasure, Brett. Yeah. And, and honor. Thank you. And, and, I love the point that you brought up right there at the end about if we don't if we don't understand something to ask for help because I can remember being in meetings for years and years and years and I just with this last sponsor we were going through step work and we got to a part where it's talking about surrender and I was like hey I I understand intellectually what it means to surrender but like I'm struggling with this like help me understand what am I surrendering to why am I surrendering like absolutely I don't get it it was hard at first to ask him because it was like, you know, I've been here long enough and I've done some steps and I feel like I should, you know, I should know what it means. But, yeah. but I was like, I'm struggling with this man. Like, I just don't, I don't get it help. And then, and then we sat down and had like an hour long conversation. And then it was like, Oh, I, I think I get it now. Thank you. But, but for so long I had that pride where I was like, I can't ask anybody. It's like, it, it, the, the thing that I think of is like if you're at work or something and you've been in this position for years and years and years and there's like one part of your job that you don't know how to do. Yeah. It's like, well, I've been here too long to ask how do I do this because I don't want them to think, oh, I, I haven't been doing it right this whole time. Like Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I, I love that point. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever brought that up. So I think that's that's a huge one. And if you don't understand something, if you're struggling with something, there's no shame in asking for Absolutely. help. There's no shame in admitting that we don't understand something because that's the whole thing. One of my favorite quotes out of out of uh, a piece of literature, uh, it says that this is a program for learning. Like we are here to learn. We're not going to come in and know all the answers. So it's yeah. okay to ask for help. Exactly. I mean, if I knew, I wouldn't be here. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> <promise>. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was a that was a big one for me. And also just to admit that, you know, things aren't going well, you know, if they're not. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I always thought I had to be this chipper, like, you know, happy, joyous and free and all the time. And But even the, lot, even the old timers, you know, aren't. The guys that have been doing this for decades, you know, it happens. Life happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dean, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, really do appreciate it, man. It was great connecting with you. Great hearing your story, seeing the parallels. I'm sure that people at home that are listening are, are going to be doing the same thing. They're going to be nodding along as you're sharing and being like, yeah, I've been there too. I've felt that I've, you know, that's, that's the beautiful thing about being in recovery is there's so many parallels. I and mean, even though, like we were talking about at the beginning, even though we didn't know each other before we started this interview, like, I feel like we, we've been on the same path. We have felt some of the same things. 
things. And, and it was just an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, Dean, thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. I had a great time talking with you, and I'm sure that the listeners at home are going to get so much out of your story. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.